Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 78, the one about B2B brand building, mistakes new marketers make, Edit Eddie, and Last Night in Soho. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome back to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more news, tech content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing Affairs Podcast and the author of Cats, Mats, and Marketing Plans, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, fantastic. And hello. And of course, I am also joined by a man who's also on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome, as always, Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much. And this remains, for now, an international production. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. How are you getting on in France, Pascal? I bet the weather is better than the weather is here in Scotland. It is, yes. I've, I've seen pictures. I've seen the, the, the grumbles by the weather in the UK. Um, not wishing to tease, but I was able to have friends and family over for dinner. We were outside till 11pm eating and drinking and having a wonderful time. And it Whilst wasn't... we were sat inside here listening to the rain hammering on the side of the house. <laughs> uh, it, it just feels um, absolutely incredible. And today I'm doing the test. I'm kind of setting up slowly but surely my home studio. So um, we shall see how we get on. So, by the way, a few weeks ago, you and I had Top Gun Maverick on the film marketing, and we stopped our review pretty much a, a month before the premiere. The premiere has happened, as we are talking, um, with the Cannes Film Festival and more, and the marketing has continued um, you know, in, with great vengeance. So we actually spoke ourselves into doing maybe a, a review of the post-release marketing campaign of Top Gun Maverick. And I was thinking, you know, our choices have always been quite international in nature. But today, you are taking us right into the centre of London. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Now, the film that we're going to be talking about today is called Last Night in Soho. And it's a bit of a it's a bit of a genre jumper. This one it's a bit like um, it's a murder mystery. It's a nostalgia fest for the nineteen sixties. There's a bit of horror fly, flying in there. Bit of time travel. I do get a bit of a Back to the Future vibe from it. So I'm really looking forward to talking about this one. But Pascal, this might be one of the first film marketings we've done where you haven't actually seen the film we're going to be talking about. That's right. So I'm going to literally immerse myself into the marketing campaign and I will let you know at the very end whether I wish to see the film or not. I must confess, however, I am a huge, huge fan of the work of Edward Wright. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and you know, I didn't realise when I first saw the film that he was actually the director because, of course, I've seen Shaun of the Dead and mm. and, and most recently the Sparks Brothers that he did, uh, a documentary film about the, the, the rock group Sparks, was fantastic. So can't wait to get talking about film marketing today, Pascal. No, absolutely. I'm going to I'm going to self-correct. Uh, I do believe that is called Edgar Wright and not Edward Wright. I produce ah. for the big fans. And you're absolutely right to be screaming at, at us if you're watching, listening to this. But before we get to this brilliant um, selection, once again, film marketing, let's begin with In the News. TikTok is taking on live streaming platform Twitch by inviting content creators to offer a monthly live subscription service. Shows focusing on beauty tutorials, recipe prep and gaming tips were mentioned in TikTok's official announcement. 
Well, according to new data from eBay Ads UK, searches for words like upcycles on eBay.co.uk increased by 40% compared to the month before, and searches for words like secondhand or repair kit rose 24 and 21% respectively. Dr. Martens has launched the Resold Scheme in partnership with second-hand clothing retailer Depop. Its famous shoes will be repolished, given new laces, soles, heel loops and insoles before being resold at around 80% of the original price. Well, IKEA is feeling generous too by allowing customers to build their loyalty points balance by attending events, using their 3D kitchen planner we mentioned a few weeks ago, creating wish lists and logging onto their online accounts. According to Pod News, Spotify will soon be testing new features such as the ability to pay to promote your show, as well as automatically placing ads in shows to earn revenue. Google has announced the end of the 10 blue links in their search results, with brands sharing highly visual shopping messages, including 3D models, AR-supported ads, click-to-view-more icons, and loyalty programs again. Wow. Walkers has brought back its Crisps In, Crisp Out campaign with a 90-second film featuring celebrities Nigella Lawson, Gordon Ramsay, Gemma Collins asking the question, are Walkers Crisps best enjoyed in or out of sandwiches? Rabina launched its £7 million brand campaign, Chin Up, which is all about laughing at life's awkward moments with a PR stunt that had Prince Harry and Meghan Markle lookalikes alone on the balcony with a message, when you've been left at a little. <laughs> of course, it's uh, the 70th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth I this week, so that's a little bit apt, isn't it, bringing the royal family into uh, a PR campaign. No, absolutely. And what a very uh, brave PR stunt as well. <laughs> but one thing I like about this section of the, In the News, uh, it's not just a reaction to the news, but also it, it helps our audience to know more about their co-host. So I need to know, Roger Edwards, are Walker Crisps best enjoy in or out of your sandwiches? <laughs> well, this is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I do like Walker's Crisps, Pascal, I have to say. Um, and I've always always um, found this a bit uh, amazing is you can actually buy Walker's crisps in most countries uh, but in in the UK they're called Walker's crisps obviously in most other countries including France I think they're called Lay's and I've never understood that there must be some sort of brand hierarchy going on and a historical thing but I have to say I've never understood this desire for people to put crisps into sandwiches. I just open the bag and scoff them from the bag. I've never put them actually in sandwiches. And I can actually imagine the likes of Gordon Ramsay recoiling in horror at the thought of putting crisps into sandwiches. In fact, I'm sure Gordon Ramsay would use some incredibly fruity language to, uh, to explain that. But hey, each to their own. Do you have them in or out? Uh, I don't like crisps at all, so <laughs> they're completely out of my diet. I, I like I like more like you know tortilla chips, oh, yes. dip, or yeah, yeah. I do like the Pringles. But those, I mean, from a young age, I used to absolutely hate it if they were uh, on display because my brothers, my sister, would be eating them very noisily just to annoy me, and I would just being you know complaining about it. I, li I like the idea back this in or are out very much like you know the my mind Brian that we've mentioned quite a few times on on this show. But um, I have seen people literally in like um, a canteen or, or the, you know, at work where they have a sandwich, you know, and they take out literally the, the ham or the chicken out of the sandwich to replace with the crisps. And then, they, <laughs> and then they squash the sandwich with their hands and eat that and then eat the, the filling separately. 
And my reaction was, what is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> that is a bit weird. I mean, I can, I can just about get my head around somebody adding the crunch to the existing sandwich and retaining all the original bits in the sandwich. But taking everything else out, that definitely is a bit weird, I think. Right, viewers and listeners, you know what's left for you to do <laughs> in the comments or via stick pipe. Please let us know, are the crisps in or out of your sandwiches? But <laughs> going back to almost something that we started to talk about last week, I mean, this in the news segment is almost like a barometer <laughs> of what is happening in business, but in society. We mentioned last week, if you remember, Roger, the challenge around the vast reduction in disposable income and mm. how brands would be reacting to that. And... I'm realizing now that we're almost working with through the four, five, or seven Ps, depending on how you look at it. So last week, we spoke about what they would do around price, and now we're seeing what they're doing about products. So we've got Dr. Martins looking at actually reselling reconditions items, and you've got IKEA giving people more points, which they can spend on IKEA items terms by doing things that are not actually about spending money it's about events and uh, even just log into your account do you think that we're going to see more of this kind of um and you know that people are going to be adapting their practices to current market forces oh absolutely right i mean we know that the cost of living crisis certainly in the UK, um, because of the fuel prices, is going to get worse. And there's going to be another massive fuel price increase in October. And people are already struggling, Pascal. And and quite a lot of people, after they came off furlough from uh, during the pandemic, they may have found their salaries have reduced or they've had to renegotiate the contracts. So I think all brands are going to have to find a way of offering people lower prices without necessarily reducing the quality of their products. Now, and it's interesting, the Dr. Martins things. I mean, I, when I grew up, Dr. Martins was almost like a status symbol. We used to call them doc, docs. Um, and just as a quick aside, when I went to university in Leeds back in the late 80s, the very first lecture I ever went to, um, the lecturer was called Quentin Utram. I mean, what a fabulous name is Quentin Utram. <laughs> and he walked in and he was wearing camouflage trousers and camouflage top he looked like he just walked out of an army surplus store and he had a pair of cherry colored docks on but there were the ones that laced all the way almost up to your knee so they were definitely boots and everybody was absolutely in awe of quentin utram's boots um and but they are solidly made aren't they and they can last for an absolute age you know um docks are the sort of shoes you can buy and wear day in day out for two years before you know the laces even need replacing so actually it makes sense in 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 terms of what we're seeing here to repurpose them and and, and add, add to their longevity because they are quality products in the first place so, so to your point, it's not actually damaging the brand. No. Dr. Martin saying, we're going to partner up with um, Depop, you mentioned. Uh, so what I'm understanding from this is that you will not be able to access the reconditioned item via Dr. Martin's formal channels. You'll have to go through the partners. But it's not hurting their brand to do so. It's fascinating, isn't it? Absolutely right. Yeah, and I will definitely see a lot more of this. Talking about decisions that could hurt a brand, I want to ask your reaction about TikTok. And it's not so much about the platform. It's more about, please, can you do something a bit different? Because, all right, you're going to allow people to go live and you're going to allow um, them to charge for that, as we've seen on Twitch, on YouTube, and many other platforms. 
But the fact that they are quoting beauty tutorials, recipe prep, and gaming tips, I'm rolling my eyes for those of you who are listening to this the podcast version. I'm thinking, really, is, is that it? Is, is the world only dominated by people who basically do that? It is very interesting, this. I mean, as you say, all of these platforms are now starting to offer these the ability to give people subscription services and you know even podcasts like this and you know um the marketing and finance podcast i could charge a fee for people to listen to it but it's just not the done thing with podcasts is it really to charge and i don't i think that it doesn't matter whether you're on tiktok youtube twitch or whatever platform it is unless you are somebody really famous or you do genuinely have millions of followers i just don't think people are going to pay to see what you do um you know if it was the aforementioned gordon ramsay who does have millions of followers on on youtube for example i think a few people might be prepared to pay a small amount of money to see content that everybody else doesn't and i know there are some youtubers who who have things like patreon and, and things like that to give people who pay them a subscription each month access to content that isn't readily available to everybody but it's only a certain segment of content creators i think that have a big enough audience to charge that sort of thing and when it comes down to it you, the, you're going to have to do some bloody good beauty tutorials, <laughs> recipe prep and gaming tips in order to get people to pay to see it. When, in fact, they can see just about every other Tom, Dick and Harry doing it as well. Absolutely. Um, and Harry can be seen on the balcony, obviously. Yeah. Uh, thanks to Rabina. Uh, how we do this, Roger, honestly, I just don't know. <laughs> so for, for me, it's just this idea of I'm trying to, obviously, and as you are, I'm trying to educate, inspire, and actually make my customers feel more confident about their own marketing, their own imagination. And I find that those brands, including Google, including Meta, they lack imagination when it comes to examples. So Natalie Emine and I spent an evening watching the Meta conference on business messaging. And the all the examples throughout the whole evening was beauty, food, and Snickers. <laughs> so, if we basically what we have a situation where the US only people are well groomed, they've got amazing good um, you know, pair of sneakers, and they they eat a lot. So that, that seems to be the essence of 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 the world. And, and I think that I when I look back at what twenty years now that I've been doing the consultancy and training. I could count on one hand the number of time I actually spoke to a beauty kind of um, based business, one selling shoes and one selling food. There's just, you know, so much more uh, diverse types of business. And I wish sometimes that those brands would just look at those as examples. Yeah. I mean, we do say this on the show so many times, Pascal, but you've got to stand out, haven't you? One of the whole points of marketing is to stand out. But if your desire is to be exactly the same as everybody else, then you aren't going to stand out, no matter how hard you try to market yourself, because you will be the same as everybody else. Okay, so just before In the News turns into the rent of the week, we're going to move on now <laughs> and slow things down with the content spotlights. Now, every week, Roger and I surprise each other with a discovery from the interweb, an article, a podcast, a video that can help us understand what it means to be a marketer in today's economy. So, Roger, what have you got for us this week? 
Well, this week, Pascal, I have an article for you. And this article is from The Drum, written by Mr. Tom Wellborn. And again, it's one of those articles which attracted me by the headline. So it always just reinforces how important headlines are. The headline is, The Six Biggest Mistakes Made by Newbie Digital Marketers. Now, I did recoil a little bit at the word newbie. I don't particularly like the word newbie, but we'll let Tom off with that for the moment because it's a, it is a really good article. So the six biggest mistakes made by people who have just started their careers in digital marketing. Now, what I thought I would do here is, as you know, Pascal, uh, and I do go on about this so much, I am a massive fan of having a strategy before you start trying to put together your marketing communications. And one of the things that we've talked about so many times on this show is that a, one of the reasons why a lot of people fail at marketing is because they don't do the strategy first. They dive straight into the communication. So I thought what would be interesting is have a look at these six mistakes that Tom says people are making and actually uh, apply that to my own marketing strategy framework, the the marketing simplicity circle, the, sim the, the circle of marketing simplicity, which I use in my Cats, Mats and Marketing Plans book, if that's okay with you. So again, what Tom's saying is that the world changes pretty much every day with digital, new apps, new platforms, new algorithms. It's a constantly shifting uh, goalposts environment. But a lot of people still do come in to digital marketing thinking that all they need to do is start tweeting or start sending out emails. So I agree with Tom agrees with our sentiment there that you need to put the strategy work in first. So if I look at my circle of marketing simplicity, the first thing that you need to do is have a deep, almost obsessive understanding of the customer. And I think you would agree with me on that. Now, here is the first mistake that Tom says digital market marketers make. One, they have no clarity on audience. So that fits, doesn't it? You have to have that deep, almost obsessive understanding of the customer. But Tom goes into it in a lot more detail and saying it's not just enough to say, I... Uh, talk to people who want to buy mortgage, a mortgage. You've got to be more specific, define their age, their gender, their interests, niching down. Because of course, there are different types of people who need mortgages. There are first time buyers, there are people who've already got a house, et cetera, et cetera. So again, he's saying, know the audience, but really know the audience. And that fits in with my idea of having a deep, almost obsessive understanding of the customer. The second part of my circle of, of marketing um, simplicity is, building your offer and that offer always comes from a that deep understanding of the customer now here the second mistake that tom says that people make is that they lack clear goals so i'm already thinking oh what's happened to the offer but we, maybe it'll arrive later on so the the goal is the third part of my circle of marketing simplicity and yes you do have to have goals there's no point saying we're going to do twitter marketing or we're going to do email marketing unless you've set yourself some goals is it about um conversions is it about sales is it about revenue what are the figures and then once you've set the goals how do you manage them it's so important and i think a lot of, one of the reasons why a lot of marketing strategies fail is people don't articulate the goals that they're going for the third mistake that tom says people make is that they set unrealistic goals now, I agree with that as well. 
Uh, and that's that is included within my marketing um, circle of simplicity and what he's saying here is that if you've currently got 500 followers on twitter it's probably un unrealistic to set yourself a goal that within a month you'll have 10,000 followers or 100,000 followers unless you do something silly like buy the followers or, or something like that so have the goals and be realistic. Um, Tom also talks about smart goals, and that's a whole other conversation that we can have. So I'm starting to think, what what's happened to the offer, Tom? Surely people need to understand the offer that they have before they start communicating, don't they? So maybe that's number four. Oh, no. Number four is ignoring SEO. So again, here we're saying that SEO is very, very important when you're building your website. And Tom goes into a little bit of detail here about that's the subject of SEO. And as you and I have said on many occasions, it is a little bit of a black art. Number five is overlooking quality content. Again, it's this idea of just putting stuff out there because you've got to put stuff out there rather than actually making sure that it stands out and making sure that it's quality. You know, it's easy to put together a crap video, but there's a lot of people putting together crap videos. So put together quality video that stands out and you're going to do a lot better. And here's number six, Pascal. So is this going to be the offer? Number six is they don't actually write the strategy down. Now, I agree with that as well. In fact, it reminds me of, you know, now that we're getting back on stages at conferences, one of the questions I often ask as part of the speeches I give at conferences is hands up if you've actually written down your marketing strategy. And I can always guarantee that the number of people who raise their hands in that audience will be very small. You know, in a room full of 200 people, I'd be lucky if I get five people who've written it down. So I absolutely agree with Tom here that you have to have a written marketing strategy. But those are the six mistakes that digital marketers make. Now, I'm disappointed because no mention of the offer. So my marketing circle of simplicity is understand the customer. That's number one. Number two is build your offer, then set your goals. And then the third bit is the actual communications activity itself. How can you do any form of marketing without knowing what it is you're talking about. Now, maybe Tom is saying, I just assume that they know what the offer is. But if we saying that they don't understand the customer enough, then how can they have built the offer based upon that understanding of the customer? Because it's only once you've got that understanding of the customer that you can work out how your product and your service best fulfills that need that our customer has and then that's how you build your messaging your strap lines your your um, um, adverts your communications around that offer so whilst i think that this is a great article and i absolutely agree that these six mistakes are being made by newbie digital marketers i think there's a seventh mistake probably that needed to be mentioned and that is they're not articulating well enough the offer that they are making to their end customer. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that um, it's probably quite implicit in in the first one, you know, if you don't know the audience, you can't articulate um, the message and so on. And I will say it's probably actually implicit in, which I absolutely, I'm absolutely delighted because, you know, this is how I started all those years ago with regard to SEO, mm -hmm. because this is the digital marketing practice that brings it all together. 
the audience, the offer, the uh, buying behavior, uh, the psychology and so on. Um, my kind of um, position on that is with all that focus on social media, people have lost you know, some of the skills around long-form blogging, around obviously what SEO is all about, which is you know matching intent and content and, and that kind of things. And, and I think that thinking about recruitment in particular, which I'm going to come on to with my content spotlight, we are seeing a, um, a whole generation of individuals coming through who are very, very good at starting fast and executing very, very swiftly on short-form content, very disposable content, but they don't have as yet, you know, they've not paid their dues. They don't have the badges and battle scars of strategy development. And I think that's what um, Tom is, is probably warning us about, which is, I've seen it, you know, in, in, in meeting situation with my own customers, the moment you say something, off they go, they want to go quickly on Twitter, or quickly they want to go and, and do something. And, and, and I get it, you know, the the crafting of the strategy is kind of pen and paper moments, it's whiteboard moments or post-its. There's no evidence actually of your hard work, bar, um, as you pointed out a moment ago, a commitment in a document of the strategy. And uh, on occasion, I, I, I understand for people to go, I'm going to, we spent three days <laughs> trying to work this strategy and it's it just fitting on three sides of A4. That, that seems very unfair. I say, well, that's just the way it is. But I can assure you, and I know that Tom will feel the same, the, the more you work on the pre kind of uh, execution phase, the better the rest, because otherwise you're forever having to catch yourself. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Mm. So it always comes back to strategy, Pascal, doesn't it? It does. It does indeed, yes. Well, thank you very much. And do you know, th th those um, articles as written by Tom Wellborn, I never tire of reading and listening to them. I'm thinking, what is that? I mean, you could argue, you and I, uh, I, I could be done with um, any form of insights and opinions, but actually it's always a delight to hear it from someone else's perspective. It challenges, obviously, your own kind of status quo. But it just proves that it is such a multifaceted discipline, the one that we've adopted, you and I, and that we, we we love really as an occupation. And we've done, we're doing what we can to defend, you know, the the, the doing marketing right. That um, we, we need to continue to have people like Tom and many others to write about it and and challenge others out there for sure. Absolutely right. So Pascal, tell me what <laughs> you are uh, spotlighting this week. So this week it's an article, which is again about challenging. Uh, opinions and and viewpoints and and positions. So I came across this, I think, through my favorite app, Flipboard. And I, I must confess, at first, I was confused about who had written it and where it came from. Let me explain. So this is um, was featured in Campaign Magazine, um, CampaignLive.co.uk. It was about a lady called Paige O'Neill, who is the chief marketing officer of Sidecore. You may have come across Sidecore a, a few times. Mm -hmm. They started life, I believe, as a um, digital asset management platform, enterprise one, and they've grown into the full uh, kind of content workflow and customer experience. And But this was actually an interview by the team I, uh, uh, at LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. So for a while, I'm thinking, who's who here? Who's talking about who? But the title is as follows, Sidecore's Paige O'Neill on Smarter Brand Building in B2B. And I'm a sucker for brand building in B2B. So I thought this is something I need to read. And again, a very short article, very much like the one you could have um, back in the days of you working in marketing, that you could have uh, faxed to somebody saying, yeah. read that. Uh, it's going to stimulate uh, quite a bit of conversation. 
So Paige O'Neill was um, being interviewed in around what it means to be a chief marketing officer for a B2B organization and brand building. And what was interesting, um, she was kind of hinting at the fact that even though she's working for Sitecore now, it can still be a challenge to present the strategy to the board to get it obviously approved, but also to continue to demonstrate value. And, and the timing of this article is, is interesting because I've been working a lot with my customers on reporting and, and reporting well so that management can make good decisions. So a couple of things she's um, invited people to reflect on. Number one, be very, very clear where you are on your company's or employer's growth cycle, because depending where you are on that journey, you will need a different form of brand building um, whether it's a startup business to a rising business to an a established business has to defend itself against the competition. These are very, very different uh, marketing campaigns and you, can, you can't have a one-size-fits-all. So if you are recently appointed in a position or if you're working in a department, you've got to almost spend time with um, colleagues at all levels to understand where you are in that company's growth and life cycle. And I thought it was a really interesting point to make from, from the start in, in that article. Then the article moves on to you know the strategy in, in today's economy. So three subtitles. We need, according to Paige O'Neill, a tech-enabled approach to brand building. I'll come back to that. We need to understand that the customer is in charge of your marketing. Uh, she called it the customer experience revolution and something that I've, I've tackled quite a bit with my customers, talent, the other crucial audience for B2B brands. If I start with um, the top one, I mean, she's not really um, revealing something new, but to understand that by the time somebody uh, gets in touch with you, whether you're B2B and B2C for that matter, they've done most of their research without your contribution. So by the time a customer gets in touch with you, they have formed an, an opinion. And with that in mind, you've got to accept that your marketing is about the kind of self-serve society. No longer someone's going to ring you to ask you for a copy of your brochure, like in the good old days. So understanding that you've got to really understand the, the tech, embrace all the different kind of communication channels and make sure that people can just help themselves to the content. Which talks about the customer experience revolution. Not only are customers in charge of your marketing, because of you mentioned a moment ago, you know, strategies informed by the audience, but you've got to be very, very careful that even though the spotlight at the moment is a lot on digital, it will not be at the expense of the physical experience. And you know, I've, I've given many examples in the in the news section. Where I want to spend a bit of time, if you don't mind, is around talent. And she's saying, Pedron is saying that the, the competition for talent in tech and tech marketing is fierce. It would seem, judging by my own experience with my customers, that trying to find and build the right marketing team, I won't even use the term digital, just marketing communications teams, is getting harder and harder because it has become literally not an employer's market, but an employee's market. There seems to be a shortage in talent for companies to grow and implement their brand building. And I'll give you an example where recently I was helping an organization in the um, kind of petrochem industry, full-on B2B, selling their services to process chemicals around the world. And they wanted to really go to the next level with their marketing. So we described and put together a skills plan 
And we needed to recruit about three people to really implement the strategy correctly and support the MD. And after many weeks of effort, it was very embarrassing for me to send my invoice to the client after failing to find the right individual. Because even though we went to interview stage, I have to tell you that people simply didn't have enough of the um, the multifaceted element of marketing. They could do something amazing on social media, or they could do something amazing on video. They'd become so specialist in their own ways, that they simply could not make a valuable contribution to strategy development, to audience profiling, to networking, you know, all the things that we do. They just didn't have it. And what they didn't have any of them, is just enough understanding of SEO, which is, for me, the most important one because that brings all the disciplines of marketing together. So my question, I suppose, and it's for us, for you and I, before the audience today, do we need to rethink how we present marketing as, as an occupation to attract either more people or do we need to warn universities and colleges and, and other kind of training organization that we, we have a very, very different need to what maybe they imagine? This is a fascinating topic, isn't it? And we could talk for hours about this. And again, it's hard enough to get people to actually define what marketing actually is. Um, you know, from the, the 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 sort of academic viewpoint that marketing is a massive process that starts with customer research and ends with marketing communications is a massive, massive discipline. A lot of people just think that marketing is advertising. It's synonymous with advertising. And of course, we know that that isn't it. So because it's hard to def define what marketing is, it's also hard to define what marketing roles are. Now, I often look at marketing job adverts on LinkedIn or wherever, just, just from a interest point of view. And, you know, I'll often read the job descriptions for roles that have marketing in the title. But when I actually read the job description, I think you're actually asking for a telesales operator or you're actually looking for a salesperson or you're actually looking for a customer service person, but the word marketing is in the title. So unless we can absolutely start talking the same language across all industries as to what marketing actually is, I think we just have, we've just got a real problem articulating it and that flows through into the recruitment. I think also, I mean, I find some of the job titles really quite difficult to even uh, understand and i'm thinking well what are they trying to do here are they trying to filter out time wasters that could be an, an issue are they trying to impress you know because um you know you read them and you kind of go what is the job here because there is a strange choice of of words put together into this kind of uh, b bizarre title and when i think about the relationship that i have with um, mds and fds good bad and ugly one thing I will say, all of them were really, really keen on clarity, which is we need to be discovered one way or the other. We need to present an offer that is interesting, stroke, intriguing enough that someone gets in touch to ask for more information and then would convert if we can do that. You know, And so when we talk about marketing and sales, and I know people will say, but these are old words. We need to bring something more current. I would challenge that because you back to what Paige you know, was saying, which is even at her position, it will be a challenge to present to the board what you have in mind you know, to begin with, and then to report back on the success of your, your campaign. And if you start to then use strange vocabulary, 
that is almost unique to, to your to your function and industry, the reaction is actually suspicion as opposed to wow, she, she must or Roger must know what he's talking about because look at the words he's using. Yeah, absolutely. And funnily enough, I've just done a uh, marketing made simple video this week about the language right. that we use. Um, and and I, I again, I've, I've been drawn back to all this chat about Web3, you know, um, metaverse, NFTs, um, off-chain, on-chain, DAOs, and all of that sort of thing. And the language is the most impenetrably complicated techno babble onslaught that I've ever come across. And yeah, I think it creates, not only isn't it engaging, and ultimately when these people do find a need for the metaverse, they're going to have a lot of trouble articulating and communicating to people who can't understand their language. But the same, again, if you start advertising job jobs for people in that sector, it's only the tech geeks who already know the language that are going to apply for it because everybody else is going to say what the <laughs> hell is a marketing godzilla you know it's it's a bit weird i've forgotten about that one thank you very much for your action to that and thank you again for our writers because without you a we wouldn't have the chance to react but also to inform and inspire our audience well Paige O'Neill mentioned about this idea of, of, of a tech-enabled approach to brand, brand building that gives us a good segue to move on to marketing tech and apps So, Roger, you've been out and about looking for amazing gadgets, software, and hardware to make life easier as a content creator and marketer. So what have you got for us this week? Well, Pascal, this could have been a content spotlight, I have to say. Um, I was doing some research on video cameras this week, and I came across a fabulous video by, I don't know what the guy's name is, but his YouTube channel is called The Hybrid Shooter. And he's, this video that he's put together is the best pocket and action cameras for summer 2022. So it's pretty current. It's only recently been put out there. And it's only about 12 minutes long. But honestly, Pascal, this guy packs in so much information about the cameras that he's reviewing. Technical information, uh, information about how you can use them, how you can frame shots, all the stuff that you would love as a film creator as well, into such a short amount of time. And quite honestly, he's covered just about all of the major brand uh, action and uh, smaller cameras, I would say, that you can buy at the moment. So we're talking about the GoPro Hero 10, which I own one of those as well the dji pocket 2 which of course i've spoken about on this show quite a lot and i use almost exclusively now to create my vlogs it's such an incredible piece of equipment but he also talks about the insta 360 uh the insta 361 which is a similar sort of idea but it actually can take a 360 view of the world now you may have seen people who have these cameras and it looks as if they're sort of in a bubble it's a really weird effect some people don't like it but it does give you a 360 view of the world he also talks about the dgi action 2 which is a dgi's version of the gopro then there's a couple of cameras which are more i guess traditional the sony zv1 which is a camera with a, a, a lens on it and interchangeable um, things like that. Uh, I would say that is a proper, in inverted commas, camera. And also the, the Sony RX100 version 7. 
And finally, he talks about the iPhone 13 Pro. So just about the most covering the, the the most available cameras out there at the moment and honestly i had to put it in to the marketing tech and app section because for 15 for less than 15 minutes 12 and a half minutes i think you are going to get all the information you need to make the decision as to which camera is the one for you the interesting thing is when i looked at that is would you like to have a guess as to which of those ones that i've named so gopro hero 10 dji pocket 2 insta 360 dji action sony zv1 uh sony rx 100 and iphone 13 guess which one is the most expensive uh oh i'm gonna guess that it is the iphone 13 no you, you'd be absolutely right the iphone 13 is the most expensive of all of those and i think the remarkable thing is that most of them especially the gopro hero and the dji pocket that sort of thing they're coming in at around about 300 to 500 dollars i think there's the the sony cameras are more 700 to 800 dollars but of course the iphone 13 is well over the thousand dollar mark now so just goes to show fabulous technology and uh nothing new in there we've talked about some of these cameras before pascal but it was just that video i just thought this is absolutely ideal for anybody who's thinking of buying a camera super yeah those, those kind of compendium comparison videos they're great and they could be also done in the written form and it's a reminder for you and i for our audience that you know when we choose content when we choose things to make reference to it's also because we think that there's a learning point from a creation point of view so all of you no matter your industry you're in a position to actually make life easier for your customers by comparing and contrasting did the um video producer did he have a favorite at the end of the video as such or it was remained quite diplomatic overall uh, he, he's quite diplomatic i think if he was to give a he was very very enthusiastic about the DJI Pocket 2 and funnily enough very enthusiastic about the GoPro Hero 10 which I'm still not sold on myself I have to say mm. but uh, yeah it, it was he was orientating himself around those two yeah, absolutely. So for me this week, Roger, it's about platform that we mentioned before, but as is often the case this time of year, they've got new releases or the improved version going out there. So the first one I wanted to bring back to the marketing tech and app segment is Headliner. Now, Headliner has been mentioned before. It supports podcasters and more to translate and transcribe the uh, kind of spoken word into what they call the audiograms, you know, that uh, static image with the sound waves moving from left to right, if you want to yeah. use that format, and also the words appearing. And headline is used to do some snackable content as the social media parlance will have you uh, use. And you kind of tease people with a few minutes of the podcast and there's obviously a call to action to go and listen to the full podcast. And they have a few other things that you can do as well. But they've recently launched something called Edit Eddie. Edit as in editing and Eddie as the gentleman that is living around the corner. And what they've done essentially is allow people following feedback and, and requests to transcribe the entire podcast, not just a small segment, and actually use the written form to edit the audio. So say, for example, um, you wanted to make the podcast a bit shorter, you wanted to remove a sentence, you wanted to perhaps even move things around, I've not checked the details, you would actually do the changes on the transcription 
and the audio would automatically adjust. There is obviously a competitor and uh, that is called Descript that has already been used. But if you are a headliner user and using some of their other features, this could be actually very interesting for you. But also, if you wanted to simply use a transcription for your blogging activities. So there you have it, headliner releasing a new feature, a new product called Edit Eddie. The next one is Google Chrome. And my goodness, we featured the Chrome extensions quite a lot in this show, but they have just refreshed and literally redesigned the user experience of the Chrome marketplace. I think it's also called the, the Chrome Web Store. So all the apps, all the extension that we've mentioned and all the others that we couldn't have time to mention have been reorganized into groups. I find it should be much easier to navigate. The categories make a lot more sense to me. And it so happened that I was um, looking for something to make my life easier. So currently, you know, I've mentioned that I am based in France. As a result of which, the security settings of all the platforms I'm using are on overdrive. And literally, I spend most of my time having to be sent pin numbers to my mobile phone <laughs> to then enter them on screen to then do this, do that, and be able to do any work whatsoever. And it's quite actually an inconvenience to try and go on an online platform to be told, no, you can't because you don't believe it's you, to be sent a, a text to your mobile phone to then have to try and find a PIN number. It's just, you know, a pain. And I find through the Chrome Marketplace to redesign interface something called Push Bullet. And Push Bullet is an, a Chrome extension that allows you to sync your phone and, more importantly, your text messages. So in future, if I need to use content from, uh, you know, written content from my phone, I'll be able to copy and paste straight from my desktop, which is going to save me, I grant you, Roger, 20 seconds, but no, 20 seconds times 10 starts to, you know, grate on you. No, and then the other thing, go on, uh, Roger. No, sorry, you carry, you finish. And the other thing that I want to do also mention is, uh, granted, Chrome extension tend to be on the kind of simple side of, you know, what you need. But don't be afraid to look deep because I even came across a fully fledged CRM system that syncs with your Gmail account and email address and so on called Streak CRM. And I was blown away that all this was available freely um, you know, via the Google Chrome marketplace. And the reason why I found it is because of the redesign and rethink of the um you know, the display, which I think is also maybe a little hint for all of us to maybe rethink maybe our websites over the summer and another thing I need to make life easier for our visitors. Over to you. Yes, it was, I was just um, giggling at your, your frustration over having to verify your identity. It, uh, it, I mean, I know that security is so, so important and we definitely don't want people to hack our accounts or, or, or get into our bank accounts or anything like that. But honestly, sometimes it becomes inconvenient, doesn't it? You know, you're trying to buy something and it says oh we sent you a we sent you an email to you no we sent you sent you a ping on the app on your phone app to verify this but well my phone's upstairs i can't do that or again you know every time you go onto a website you haven't been before you've got to give them bloody permission to use cookies or the gdpr and you think wouldn't it be nice if you could just say okay everybody can do it i, I you know and um and i know we shouldn't complain about it because Security is very, very important, but inadvertently, Indeed. inadvertently, you know, I think that when we put these procedures in place, we have created something that can get annoying, and that's a shame. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in my case, I mean, just as well that I had my phone with me. I mean, it's very rare that I leave my phone behind at home. But I was at a co-working center in Saint-Nazaire. If my phone had been at home, I'd have been stuffed. Yeah. I couldn't do any work because the PIN number had been sent to my phone. But yeah, uh, so push bullets um, for you know simple things like this. And please, please, all of you, do have a look at the newly designed Chrome Marketplace. You may discover another gem to help you create better content faster. We say this all the time, but it is so true. None of this would be possible without the daring work of visionaries and pioneers of the recent and distant past. Let's move on to This Week in History. In 1944, the Prime Minister Winston Churchill announced that Operation Neptune, the code name for the Normandy landings, began shortly after midnight under the command of General Bernard Montgomery. And in 1949, British author George Orwell published his dystopian classic, 1984, a warning against centralised and dictatorial system of government that introduced such concepts as Big Brother and the Thought Police. In 1975, Sony introduces the Betamax video cassette player, and despite fierce competition from JVC's VHS format and, of course, digital, Betamax enjoyed the support of loyal supporters until 2002. Okay, well, in 2009, the first United Nations recognized World Oceans Day was celebrated. As described by the Oceans Project, it is now an annual day to recognize the ocean, its importance in our lives, and how we can protect it. Wow. Can we go back to, very time to talk about 1944, I must confess, because I'm literally only an hour away from all, all this uh, event, but 49, um, George Orwell, creating a book that is literally relevant today. I mean, like... Yeah, I mean, Pascal, I read 1984, probably around about... 1980 uh, I, I think it was w perhaps one of those books that we had to do in school yeah. um, and I always remember thinking gosh 1984 isn't that far off um, and and fortunately all the horrible things described in that book didn't happen by the time we got to 1984 but I often think now where we are, especially in the UK, with a government that just lies all the time. And quite a lot of what George Orwell described in 1984 was a government that tells lies so much that they become truth. Um, I can see more of what George Orwell was warning against way back when he wrote this in today's world than actually in 1984. So whilst he was a bit off in terms of the year, he's, he was actually really quite scarily accurate with some of the things that have come to pass by 2022. I mean, it's not possible to do so, but it would be a fascinating conversation to have with him to say, so what were you observing what were you analyzing and what led you to believe that this was a possibility? Mm -hmm. Did you take, for example, the um, Nazi regime to have been, you know, of its era to the, you know, to this degree whereby if they'd been successful, for example, and what was it that you picked up that led you to, to that conclusion? And who were you talking to in, a, in that kind of trusted network that would have led you to also reach this conclusion? Because there were, you know, it's not just a work of fiction 
that is coming out of nothing. There was obviously something, some triggers in there that led to him writing this book. Yeah, and, you know, Big Brother is watching you. I mean, we live mm. in a society now where Big Brother literally is watching us. It's either through the CCTV cameras that we have on every street corner and every alleyway, or even the phone that we carry around in us that records where we go and the data that we use. And the thought police, you know, you again, you can argue that, that, you, that there are certain things that you, if you say now, you could get carted away and put in prison. Um, you know, there are some countries in the world where, you know, that literally does happen. You say the wrong thing and that's it. You're, you're, you're out of society. Uh, but it, I think one of the things that, I, that re always struck me about 1984 was how he described the manipulation of language by the governments within the story. And I do see the manipulation of language, certainly in the UK and possibly in America as well. You know, even even like the, 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 Bre the Brexit, get Brexit done, was all to do with language, wasn't it? It was um, rammed down the throat through the um, client media in the UK. And, and similarly, um, the, the campaigns in America, a lot of it was down to these slogans, which were repeated so often that they, all, that they became reality. And that, to me, has always been the fascinating thing about 1984, not so much the, the big brother and the thought police and, the, and the, the structure of society. It was the use of language to manipulate the population. Mm. And when you look at sci-fi movies that depict uh, to, you know, you, that kind of universe, you see the scenes where people are walking the streets and there's that slogan being shouted out regularly, non-stop, yeah. or the posters or whatever. And, and you can see that manipulation um, for sure. So I wanted to kind of then move on to 1975, um, the Betamax video cassette player. I mean, have you ever had one or seen one back in, in the days? We were VHS right from the very start, Pascal. We first first got a, a, a VHS video recorder around about 1983, I think. Uh, so quite a while after uh, the introduction. But I don't really remember many people having Betamax. There was one person across the road who did have Betamax. And the only thing that I can remember being different is that it seemed to take longer for the Betamax cassette to do whatever it needed to do to get the tape around the heads. Because when you put a VHS cassette in, it would literally just start playing. Whereas with a Betamax, you put it in and then there was a going on in the background. So that that was my memory of Betamax. But a lot of people said that the picture quality was better on a Betamax, but I never really got the opportunity to make that comparison. Very much so, and I was stunned to discover that uh, they built Betamax video cassette player till 20, 2002. That was the last time that mm. they did them. So I've got a feeling that if you had one, it would probably you know you could probably sell it to quite a high price. But it, it's fascinating that you know no matter the products, there always will be a loyal following, as is the mm. case with with Betamax. So in our case, a friend of the family who was a bit of a, already in the 80s a bit of a tech head was buying everything and he basically gave us a Betamax player because yeah. he'd moved on himself to VHS and my memory is the noise they, you had to fit from the tops you had to put the cassette and literally both hands slam the, <laughs> the cassette into position 
because we're so hard to use and the whirling and the, and the noise and then you you could watch um a, a film or two but even then it seemed like such a strange thing to do because you couldn't record from memory you could just only play the films you'd bought mm-hmm. on bitamax which already were very very expensive then so um for me, it's back to this idea of competitions around different brands and different styles. But I find that people, uh, they had a following, they had buyers, they had people who would said, like you said, the image is much better, the sound is better, I'm sticking with Bitamax. It's just kind of uh, remarkable, really. Absolutely right. <laughs> but uh, obviously VHS won the war and Indeed. effectively became the established format until it was superseded by the DVD. Yeah, and the, the the one reason they they won, if you think, wasn't because uh, uh, the quality issue. People thought it was convenient, back to convenience again, to be able to actually record an entire movie on one on one cassette. And I remember, I mean, I think you could get even uh, VHS cassettes that could last two hours or something like this. So you, you you could be guaranteed to have the full movie, even with the adverts. You know, <laughs> no, there the, the, the were actually VHS tapes that would do four hours. Wow! Yeah. yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Convenience. It's always there. You know, yeah. for for customers. Anyway, let's get back into the present, Roger, if you don't mind, with the creators' shoutouts. So, Roger Edwards, who is under the spotlight this week? Well, I've done a shout out for Stefan Thomas before, Pascal, but mm-hmm. I'm going to do a I'm going to do a shout out for Stefan Thomas again. There's two reasons why. First of all, um, he does really good content, and for those of you who've never heard of Stefan before, he's a bit of an expert on networking. Uh, he's written a few books on the on networking, and he often appears at. Uh, conferences and expos doing keynote speeches on networking and he's got a different view of networking to a lot of people you know a lot of people say you go to a networking event you stand up you've got your 40 second or your 60 second pitch and Stefan takes a different approach to that but the second reason I wanted to shout him out again this week was because this new piece of content he's just put out just got me thinking now He recently did um, a talk at a conference and he's just actually posted the entire keynote on YouTube. It's called Ditch the Elevator Pitch. I love that uh, subtle rhyming in there. Ditch Mm -hmm. the Elevator Pitch. It's well worth it watching it just for the Ditch the Elevator Pitch message that Stefan's putting across. But the reason it just got me thinking, I've always put out snippets of my my conference speeches. So maybe a 30-second uh, bit of John the Wine Man or a 30-second bit of The Cat Sat on the Map. But I've never actually posted on YouTube an entire keynote. And I've always had it in my head that if I put the keynote on on YouTube, that actually that might prevent people from booking me because they'll think, actually, well, we'll just watch the whole keynote. There's no there's no point um, actually listening to what he's got to say in person. So I always used to think I'll put up the snippet. But once I saw that, that Stefan's actually published the entire thing, I had a quick scout around and found that actually most speakers will have put at least one of their entire keynotes up there on YouTube. So Thanks, Stefan. You've given me something to think about again and as to whether I need to actually go back and dig out one of my videos because I do have quite a few videos of entire keynotes and maybe yeah. it's time to get one up there on YouTube. 
Super. Do you know what's interesting about this show? You know, I say this again. We, we don't confer. We don't discuss. We just add to the show notes. And of course, today, I'm going to give a shout out to a podcast show that has the word pitch in it as well, <laughs> which is quite incredible. Now, uh, it so happens to I don't have one, not two, not three, but four people to give a shout out to. They are the co-host of Sequel Pitch, a podcast show where four friends pitch sequel ideas to movies that don't currently have a sequel. Isn't that amazing? Uh, I mean, literally, if I could have an app called, let's say, Frinder, and I could describe the kind of friends I want to have, people who love movies, who dream by making movies, who love video games, who love Dungeons & Dragons and more, those four individuals would show up on the app, I can assure you, Roger. <laughs> We're talking about Drew Toynbee, Ross Harmston, Matt Rochton, and Andy Henry, the co-host of Sequel Pitch. So what they do... They got this amazing podcast started in February 2021. Episode one was about labyrinth. I mean, already, <laughs> I think those guys are amazing. And they pitch ideas to each other and they kind of sign off on it. And sometimes they go into a lot of details about who the cast could be, who could be you know, behind the music and so on. But they pitch an idea of a sequel about a film that don't necessarily have one, or maybe there was a, a failed attempt. And they have, to the tune now of 44 to 45 episodes by the time we're recording this one, the latest one they discussed it with a special guest is Top Gun from 1986. They even added recently a bonus episode called Spoiler Cast, where one of them has gone to the movies to see, for example, Top Gun Maverick or any others, and comes back and gives an update to the other three, and they can vote on whether or not they're going to go to the movies and see it. So Sickle Pitch, four friends who are creating uh, this podcast show. And the reason why I wanted to kind of include it, not because of the movie element and the fact that these uh, have got shared interest and passion, is because it's another example of what you can do with content creation, even in a business setting. You will know others who share your passion by your industry there will be something you can use as a hook to expand upon, to react and so on. And sometimes it's not just back to your point, Roger, with um, with Stefan. It's not necessarily about being the deliverer of a tutorial or the deliverer of a masterclass. Your thoughts and reactions are just as interesting as informative as you know your knowledge. So there you are. They are my selection today for the creator shoutouts. Pitch, you know, when I saw this, Pascal, and, and I read it, and I thought, wow, what a fabulous idea. I thought, that's the sort of thing that you and I would have come up with. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, what, um, you know, Drew, Ross, Matt, and Andy are uh, 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 kind of giving me as, as, um, as um, in is to advise all of you, my customers, your customers, and the viewers and listeners, I give you, we give you permission, you know, those four individuals give you permission to do a bit of what you want with content creation, and you will find the link with business. You will find the link with you know your profession. Uh, and and sometimes I wonder whether you know our customers are big guarded because they're still worried about the opinions of their peers and competitors. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you again, Roger, for your selection too. It is time to move on to film marketing. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned during the introduction, I have not seen your selection for today, last night in Soho. So, perhaps like many others listening and watching, let's get onto the trailer for the first time for me. Baby, you 
brings you down then? I'm studying. London College of Fashion. The room is on the top floor. It's perfect. I love it. If I could live any place and any time I'd live here. In London. In the 60s. My dreams. There was a girl. And you are? Sandy. I got this kind of gift. And see people, places, things others can't. This is the closest most people ever get to their dreams. They're not just dreams. Jack, I don't want to do this. You think you can just walk away? It really happened. What did you see? Leaving ghosts. I want to report a murder. You witnessed the murder last night, but you believe this was a vision from the past. The guy that killed her is still like that. I have to stop him. Where are you going? I know what you did. I've done a lot of things. You're gonna have to be more specific, love. You can't save me. Daddy! Wow, I've talked about a mosaic of images and feelings, and you use a term. Jean Jumper, which I'm going to you know, assign to you forever now. You invented the, the term Jean Jumper. Wow. I, I'm actually full of emotions about this. It's thinking, is it, too, is it going to be too complicated as a storyline? Is it going to be you know, sufficiently enthralling? Is it going to be too long, too short? Um, yeah, okay. Let's continue that with the marketing campaign and see what, what more we can you can reveal about this movie. Because you've seen uh, the movie, haven't you? Oh, yeah. I've seen the movie, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, Pascal. It really is a fabulous movie. But as I say, it, it, it sort of, it's part 1960s nostalgia, so there's a heavy, heavy um, uh, sort of view of London in the 1960s. I mean, even the, the, it's in the trailer, the bit where one of the characters walks out onto the street and you've got Thunderball on the movie poster opposite which sort of places it around about 1965-1966 and it's also part ghost story as well, part horror. There's a murder mystery in there. It does jump between time zones although it, it, it happens in a very clever and very subtle way but I got Back to the Future style vibes from it. Um, the cinematography is fabulous. Now, there's a to achieve that sort of past present jumping, 
they they do it and i've and i've actually watched um, um some some documentaries about this there was no actual post uh production trickery to do these special effects they actually did it with different camera angles and even from the point of view of one character looking into a mirror and seeing a different character was all done with camera angles apparently which is absolutely incredible i thought the Color palette was gorgeous. The actors mm. are are really good. I mean, Anna, Anya Taylor Joy is really really attractive lady and incredible actor. She was in a TV series called The Queen's Gambit about a chess player, which was That's astonishingly right. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the thumping nineteen sixties hits. But the thing is, Pascal, I, uh, the the script probably let itself down towards the end. There's a big reveal, which I'm not going to talk about, just in case you do decide to watch it, which the film builds up to. And I, I think the script actually just messes it up a bit, All um, right. which, which is unfortunate because it probably does let the film down in its last third. Having said that, though, it opened to fabulous reviews, Really good reviews. I think it's eighty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is really quite high. But it was an absolute box office failure. I think it only made twenty three million against a budget of forty three. It was nominated for BAFTAs as well and many many other awards. And I just think, well, is it because of the writing that it wasn't successful? But of course, it can't be because. If people were disappointed with it because of the writing, then they would have actually gone to see it in order to be disappointed. So the fact that it bombed was probably down to the marketing because I can't think of why people didn't go to see it. Now, you've already you've already articulated that maybe there was a lot going on in the in the trailer. And despite the fact that it looks good, you know, is it a nostalgia film or what? Is it too jumping about? And maybe that puts people off so if we look at the marketing let's actually decide whether they didn't focus enough on what the film was actually about so as you've said the trailer is pretty heavy on the the 1960s nostalgia i think and the poster as well pretty much plays upon that too i mean again the the, the uh color palette's beautiful uh and it, and it showcases the actors and there's there's a teasing of the of the time zones things going on but i think that it's very light on the story and heavy on the gloss Edgar Wright is known for his glossy films. He did Baby Driver. The Sparks Brothers is very musically orientated. Um, but then I'm thinking, well, the trouble is, you you get the flashes of murder. There's, a, I'm sure, there's a knife scene in the in in the trailer. But is it? Did it actually blow it by not telling you what this film was about? But then on the other side of the coin, maybe they would have given too much away. And as I say, there's a big reveal, which I don't want to reveal but they may have teased that too much. So it was probably very difficult for them. Uh, I think maybe they should have gone a little bit further to tell us what was in the film. Now, if I go right back uh, to September 2019, uh, when um, Edgar Wright actually posted on Instagram on the day that they wrapped shooting. Now, if you look at that photograph, um, Pascal, which shows... Um, one of the characters looking really quite wide-eyed and terrified. If you were to see that photograph, you would assume that this was some sort of slasher movie, wouldn't you? 
Actually, looking at the image, it reminds me almost of Japanese horror, you know, because she's got that kind of um, mascara has been running out and has kind of almost the eyes, you know, which are open very wide, as you mentioned, yeah. and circle with the black of the, of the makeup. Yeah. Reminds me a bit of, uh, was it The Grudge or one of those, yes, Dark Water? Yes, yes. Um, so for me, you know, at that time, if I'd seen this, I'm thinking horror. And I'm thinking maybe an homage to Japanese cinema. I'm thinking of uh, probably uh, what we've enjoyed, you know, the, the, the whole, the insidious and all those kind of movies. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it definitely, it doesn't definitely has that vibe about it. Now, of course, the movie was pulled from its 2020 release oh, because of the pandemic, as we know. Uh, so that delayed everything. Um Edgar Wright was interviewed within the Empire magazine. There was a load of photographs in the Empire magazine, all of which were very similar to the one that we've just talked about. So scary photograph of female protagonist. Finally, they um, moved it to its October 2021 slot. And Edgar Wright was back on Twitter straight away and uh, talking about it. Now, one of the things that I do think they got right with the marketing here is the use of Twitter. Edgar Wright's tweeting about it a lot. It had its own Twitter handle, as you would expect, and they definitely shared a lot of really beautiful photography, uh, both from the film, but also from the events that surrounded the film, which I think is really good. But once they got the date nailed for October 2021, then the marketing actually ramped up. So the first teaser poster and trailer came in May 2021. The teaser poster was more of a sort of split between the past and the present. So you had Anya Taylor-Joy's character, who's the one in the past, on one half of the poster, and uh, Thomas in um, what's what's her, what's her actual um, full name? Thomas and Mackenzie's character on the other side of the poster to give you that idea of the fact that it's split in time. And then it, this is when may, maybe again this is this is part of the uh, of, of the issue. There's a lot of talk about is this film totally about the nostalgia for the 1960s. And, and Edgar Wright has been interviewed about this a lot. And it's probably just a general observation, but when we do films which have a heavy nostalgia element to them, and again, I think Back to the Future had a nostalgia about the 1950s, we tend to focus on the good things that happened back in time. Oh, I'd love to mm. have lived in the, in the 60s or the 50s. It was such a much better time than it is now. And what we don't really, what we don't really focus upon perhaps is that there were bad things happening in the 1960s and the 1950s as well. And what this film does, because of its uh, the horror element to it and the murder mystery element to it, does highlight quite a lot of the, the nasty stuff that was going on in London in the 1960s, you know, gangsters and crime and abuse even. And that's sort of hidden by the marketing campaign and again you know maybe they should have teased more of that in the campaign and made it less glitzy now again this this was uh, this was discussed massively during the venice film festival in september 2021 and there was a really extensive interview panel in venice with all the actors involved and even and it's well it's worth shouting out that this was the last film that diana rigg 
um, actually filmed. Oh, now, wow. Diana Rigg, as you know, was one of the best Bond girls ever. She was uh, she was in On Her Majesty's Secret Service with George Lazenby. She also played Emma Peel in the 1960s TV series The Avengers. And she was also a, a key um, actress in Game of Thrones as well. Um, but this was, unfortunately, the last role she did before she died. But I think the, 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 they did a lot of tweeting uh, and there's this tweet from Venice. I think that they did a good job of selling the ensemble cast and selling the 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 run up to to the launch of the film. But I'm still not getting from the tweets that there's anything other than other about this film other than the 1960s nostalgia. Are you getting anything else yet or or not? No, and, and I think what, what's interesting for me, uh, as I'm discovering, it's actually good fun to do this this way, I'm yeah. discovering the marketing campaign and I'm reacting to it live, I'm thinking, unless it's been hidden away or it disappeared from the interweb, I can't quite believe that they went for an October release. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm thinking Halloween. Therefore, I'm thinking some of the lessons you know we shared with regard to um, you know, things like Scream, Five But Not Five, and that kind of things. So was there a chance for them to capitalize on what you and I have discussed before, which is to split the audience based on the different facets of the movie? Yeah. So could you, have, could you have targeted the horror fans? Could you have targeted the 60s fan? Could you have targeted um, filmmakers, actually, you know, in some way, because Edgar Wright, Edgar Wright is now someone that even I follow because I feel like I can learn and I find his work from the from the get-go was inspiring, his use of camera, his use of jump cuts that we saw so in Shaun of the Dead. And did he do Hot Fuzz as well, or was it somebody else? I think he did Hot Fuzz. I think he did do Hot Fuzz, yeah. yeah. So you've got all that going on, and he's a Brit, and he's taking place in London. So, so I'm thinking, for example, you know, could you get people to go to Soho and take selfies and send them to maybe a, a competition. So my mind is racing already, uh, informed by the 77 movies we've reviewed <laughs> to, to date. And I'm thinking, well, maybe they did do that, but I'm not hearing it. And, and, I, and I wonder whether, you know, because I understand just enough about the industry, Roger, to know that Edgar Wright is not in control of the marketing. That, mm -hmm. That's that's a definite. He did his bit with the festivals, with the using zone account and so on. But I wonder, and would love to hear from anyone involved, in it, I wonder whether they sat down and worked out a strategy based on splitting the audience. Yeah, and talking about splitting now, the 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 second post, which is the one that we um, that we've actually got uh, uh, on on the the notes here, came out in September. And the, as I say, I think the color palette of the film is absolutely gorgeous, and and you'll love this from a filmmaker's point of view. That the 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 video is tinged red or blue, depending upon which era of the story um, you're actually in. And it's very, very subtle when you're watching the film. You probably don't notice it until somebody points it out to you. But some of the scenes set in the past have got a slightly different colour palette than some of the scenes set in the present. And and I love that. Now, finally, in October, and, and this was like literally in the, in the days running up to the launch, they started doing some TV spots. And again, I love the fact that they actually uploaded the TV spots to Twitter as well, they finally did start talking more about the fact that the film was a time-twisted murder mystery as opposed to just a 1960s nostalgia um, thing. 
because there's a heavy music slant to this, and as I said, the, the soundtrack is fantastic. Um, Edgar Wright, as you would expect, put out a Spotify playlist. For uh, I love the fact that, yeah. he's, that, that he's done that. All the costumes, and the costumes are fabulous as well, were on display in Los Angeles, Universal City Walk. Interestingly enough, from a musical point of view, they actually put out a music video of Anya Taylor-Joy singing her version of Downtown. Now, this is really interesting. I, I can't think of any of the films that we've reviewed so far in film marketing where this has actually happened. So if you watch this video, I mean, she sings it. It's a, it's a, a, a much quieter, downbeat version of Downtown than the original. Um, but it's interlaced with scenes from the movie. Now, what they've actually done is the scenes from the movie that you see in this music video are actually the same scenes from the trailer, so you're not actually getting anything new, except the fact that this actress is doing a version of this song. Now, this is a completely separate music video. It's not in the film itself. The song's in the film, but not this actual video of her singing it. Now, I thought that was quite interesting. I like the idea of you know trying different ways to get the audience to pay attention so oddly even though i never saw the trailer i'm pretty sure i saw the tv spot yeah and my memory was around the mirrors mm -hmm. i was thinking oh that that's clever and, mm. and it felt like something i'd want to, to watch and i do remember seeing the um the music video probably pushed by you know the algorithm on youtube and so on and back to this idea of you know, is it a horror film? Is it a time travel film? Is it a thriller? You know, there's all kinds of things. I, I think that the music video doesn't actually give much away. Mm -hmm. So I enjoyed the performance, but I didn't feel I was um, let into the universe of last night in Soho in any meaningful ways. Yeah, and... Um... Even though the t the TV spots finally started to reveal a little bit more about what the film was about, we then almost go back to it being a nostalgia thing. There was a there was a, a focus on the sixty the sixty second film school, and they had Edgar Wright in there, but he was mainly talking about his own nostalgia for London in the 1960s and how he represented that in the film. And again, I think that it sort of um, it just didn't give an enough away. Um, the next thing they did, which I thought was quite cool, is that there was a, a lens for Snapchat um, um, that when, that can turn your world into, into 1960s London. But again, it's turning it into 1960s London, which reinforces the fact in my head that this is a nostalgia film. It's more like a film like probably Quadrophenia or or um, or Tommy or something like that, rather than a than a horror movie murder mystery. Um, I had, I have to say the tweeting they did from the screenings leading up to the premiere very glitzy beautiful um, photography and I think that that was good but again not giving much away about the film and I think as you would expect there were some uh, specific posters made for specific theatres um, the the last one here for for the um, for the AMC theatre focuses Dolby Labs etc again it focuses entirely I think on the 1960s nostalgia and the vibe the final piece of of marketing I absolutely love this Pascal is they actually um, commissioned a painting by artist James Patterson 
And if you've actually, I actually include the link here in the notes for us, you can actually click through to a tweet, which was obviously time-lapsed as he was painting it. And it's absolutely gorgeous, this piece of artwork. And again, it has the two colour schemes, the blue and the red, denoting the two time zones. And it's an absolutely gorgeous piece of marketing. But once again, however good it is, and however beautiful it looks, and I would be happy to have that on the wall here in my office, it doesn't give you anything about the story. The, the strap line, a murder in the past, a mystery in the future, in very small writing, maybe people would miss that. So my conclusion is that this is one of the best films I saw in 2021. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved the people. I loved the script. I loved the the uh, the cinematography and the way that Edgar Wright did it is absolutely amazing. But I think that the reason why it was a box office bomb was that people didn't think that this was anything other than a film about the 1960s and maybe a musical film about the 1960s and for that reason they didn't go to see it and that's a shame because it is actually a really quite good scary horror movie set in the 1960s and with a, an element of time travel to the present day as well so pascal if you had just seen the marketing and you hadn't got me rabbiting on about how good it is do you think this would have made you go to want to see it nope yeah, I'm sorry to say, and and I feel terrible about it because you and I know enough about the world of movie making cinema to know that this is, uh, you know, it, people said you know a movie being made is a extraordinary and a miracle in its own right, and but I'm thinking back to this idea of um, when I saw the teaser, when I saw the video, and so on, that would be on my watch list on Amazon Prime or Netflix or wherever, probably for a very long time. You know, I wouldn't be like looking forward to seeing it based on just the marketing pack, but which is also part of the marketing campaign, word of mouth marketing, which is what I've been essentially going through with you. I'm thinking, I really want to see this now because I am a big fan of the genre. I like that type of things. And I want to literally be impressed by the craft and the cinematography that I know that Edgar, Edgar Wright can can pull off. I just wish that they would um, almost make up their mind about, you know, you've got to lean on something. You know, you've got to choose. Is it a horror film? Is it the 60s? Is it the murder mystery? Is it actually about, you know, uh, female uh, emancipation? It, it doesn't matter what you choose, but you've got to choose your camp. And it feels like with this one, um, putting to one side the fact that it's not down to the, the producers of the film, it's down to the marketers and, and the distribution companies. You, you, you have to choose or choose many camps, but be clear, I would almost suggest to you that this trailer that I saw for the first time today with you, uh, I felt a little long. It felt like they packed everything in which is a, a symptom and a signal that they just couldn't make up their mind about which way to go. Um, so based on the marketing uh, elements and ingredients, I have to say, no, based on this conversation, I'm going to rush now to my <laughs> TV and quickly look where it is because I've got to see this now. Yeah, and you will you will like it from the point of view of 
the filmmaker. I mean, honestly, Pascal, some of the cinematography and the camera tricks, you will come back here and you will phone me up and say, this <laughs> This is how they did... There's a particular scene, which, again, I'm not going to ruin, where they do this incredibly clever um, bit of a, of a dance number, and it flits between the two time zones. And I've... To say that they achieved this without any post-production... Um, special effects they did it all down to camera angles is astonishing you'll be able to tell me immediately how they did it but i had to watch a documentary to tell me how they did it but i know you will know <laughs> how they did it so even from that point of view i hope that you do watch it and i hope you do enjoy it but it would be interesting as well to see i do think that they blew the ending a bit it's a really good big reveal and it 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 it's a great twist, but I think they cocked it up. Not from the top. Well, listen, everyone, let us know if you've seen Last Night in Soho and do you concur? Do you, you know, kind of reflect on what Roger has shared with us? If you've not, will you, like me now, look forward to seeing it and, and kind of take on board uh, the, the information? But it, this has been actually a fun uh, variation on film marketing where I, I walked into the virtual room knowing very, very little and, and to great pleasure in listening to, obviously, your, your account and, and the, your discovery for the marketing campaign. Everyone, this has been episode 78 can you believe it roger thank you so much for being a wonderful co-host and for all of you thank you for being wonderful supporters please leave your suggestions and comments in the usual places until the next one go out there and make sure your marketing is done right i was pascal Anthony, and he was roger edwards mm -hmm.